0: Good morning. This is Melissa Hale, Spencer, the editor at the Altamont Enterprise, and I'm really excited to have across the table for me, Laura Shore. Welcome, Laura. Thank you. Good morning. (laughs) We have so many different things to talk about because it seems to me Laura is one of those people when she is part of a community. She throws herself into all dis- different aspects of that community. I first met Laura about 12 years ago doing a home and garden story because she and Nancy Oda have this beautiful house that they have restored, the Jacob Krauts Inn. And um, from there, her name just kept popping up in many, many places. So I'd like to start with just talking a little bit about how you came to Altamont and how and why you got so invested in so many aspects of the community here.
1: Well, we were living in Albany and we had decided to move um, out into the country-ish. And um, I had been doing a lot of genealogy research actually I would get interested in things and then follow up leads and I really wasn't even researching my own family I was like researching random people for fun and Nancy saw the ad for the Inn of Jacob Crowns in the paper and she said wow, that's an old country inn, you could research everybody that ever lived there. And
0: so (laughs) sort of
1: on (laughs) a large, we drove out and took a look. And um, just it seemed like just a very, very interesting project. And we didn't have the faintest idea what we were getting into. And um, it took a big chunk out of our savings. (laughs) But it's it's been kind of a labor of love. And Unfortunately I never got I never found a register, so I couldn't research all the people that lived there, but I could imagine who might have, have um stayed there. And once you know, when you buy one of the big houses in a town, people reach out to you to do things and so I was asked to put the house on the act, um Altamont Community Tradition um house tour, the Victorian holidays. And after a lot of hemming and hawing, I finally decided to do it. And then, be, you know, got asked to be, you know, part of the group. And I have a really hard time saying no to things. So that's really why my name keeps coming up. And she's now the president up. of that right. group. Just <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> she's just a girl who can't say no. So tell us a little, for people that
1: don't know, what Altamont community tradition is. Sure. Um, Altamont Community Tradition was started, I'm not, I think about 2002. And I think it was started as a kind of in reaction to the losses of some of the Victorian houses, the older homes in the village. And it was, um, probably more activist in its early days. Mm-hmm. And over time, it's really become a group that doesn't take a position on village issues, but tries to create um, memories, tries to create a sense of community in the village. Um, We're a pretty small group. It's a small village, so there's a limited number of people who have a lot of time to devote to volunteer activities. But we uh, sponsor the Strawberry Social uh, in the spring, which is kind of a kickoff and just that name—I know
0: Elizabeth <laughs> does the back in time and is always coming across socials. And just to, right. just to come up with that is a modern
1: idea. Mm-hmm. Is so wonderful, and it's lovely. I mean, there the um, we have uh, people. The linen dolls uh, do these these wonderful kids games in the park with and a giant parachute, with the giant right? parachute, and we get volunteers from all over, and it's an incredible. I don't know. I just... It it seems like every year there's a thunderstorm early in the day and then the sky clears up and it's beautifully crystal clear evening and there are kids running around and jumping. And another remarkable
0: thing is, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's strawberry shortcake and it's handmade shortcake right right people bake this themselves which also doesn't happen these days no
1: it doesn't we get together so the you know there are a few people who get together we get the strawberries from altamont orchards they always it's always a question are there going to be strawberries this year and and but they always seem to come through and people get together and and cut up um quarts and quarts and quarts of strawberries and then another group of people gets together and bakes 350 strawberry (laughs) shortcakes and (laughs) stewart's donates whipped cream and and it's it just sort of comes together pretty and then in around the holidays you have the victorian holiday right right and that's really where the group spends most of its time and energy we'll be starting up organizing it at the next meeting which is September 5th and um, anybody's welcome to volunteer for the board we have meetings on the uh, first Thursday of every month at the Masonic Hall Uh, it's a really great group of people very diverse Uh, we have different ways to participate there's the the board who get to vote on things and then there's friends of ACT who are sort of a community of Ready volunteers who also are invited to the meeting. So it's it's actually become a lot of fun. Um, the Victorian holidays is usually the second Sunday in December, and did I say Sunday? I think it's Saturday. I think it's Saturday. I think you? it's Saturday. Yeah. Um, and so uh, we have usually have house tours. They've been over the years. They've they've taken a couple of years off from house tours. We're starting to run out of houses, and and so that's <laughs> but always. But you can every always year.
0: revisit them because they're new people. They have new
1: owners <laughs> and new houses, and um, so again, if people want to have their houses on the tour, they should contact us because it's always a bit of a challenge finding people that are willing to have you know 150 200 people tromp through their house and it's so
0: nice because the businesses are open we always look forward to it because we get to meet hundreds of our readers and we take their portraits and it's just it feels like you know you're inviting people into your home (laughs) it just has a nice a nice uh, ambiance to
1: it it's great i i just love it i love seeing the streets come alive with people walking you know up and down the streets there's a We started a few years ago, we started something we call the Winter Market, where we invite vendors uh, to participate, either in the, you know, there are people in the Orsini Park. You know, the Boy Scouts sell these little, cute little reindeer made out of birch logs. And there's, you know, people with candied apples and and cider and whatnot. And then the restaurants are open, um, Agway, donates trees there's a a tree decorating contest where different um, businesses and organizations will you know come together and decorate a tree and the enterprise should do a tree that would be fun wouldn't it (laughs) I <laughs> i'm inviting you here okay. on the air but i'm not going to accept on the air okay. because
0: who knows what might happen you think how would we decorate a tree Newspaper?
1: well you've got a but, little bit of time yeah. <laughs> anyway so it's i i just it's it's really a uh Every year we think, oh, my God, it's so much work. But then when it actually happens, it's really, really It does. Wonderful. It
0: feels magical. And it really Santa, does.
1: I mean, how many villages have a Victorian train station that Santa can arrive at? And, and the kids and, are screaming, yes, and the yes. excitement
0: is palpable. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's magical. Yeah, yeah. Well, so now you're up to something new. You emailed that there's going to be the first Founders Day, and you are helping to volunteer for that. So I know you said that Dan Barker is in charge as as the what is it, archivist? Is that as the director of the archives? Of yep. The director mm-hmm. of the archives um, hard shoes to fill there, yeah. Mary Jo's. But tell us what
1: Founder's Day is going to be. Well, Dan started a little while ago, and he's a librarian in Albany, and he's lives in the village and, and grew up here, and he's sort of getting his his bearings, and there are some of us who have been volunteering over the last few years, so Keith Lee and Connie Rue and um, Judy Deneen, uh, Lois um, Ginsburg. And so we kind of got together, and we were thinking, what should we do? And October seemed like a really far far away. And we said, Oh, well, let's, let's celebrate Altamont's Founders Day, which is October eighteenth. And what we did was we decided to back it up to Columbus Day weekend, because there's a New York State um, tourism project called path through history. (laughs) And what they do is they have a and people can go to I think it's path through org, but you can also Google it. Um, they have a website where all the different communities can post their history-related activities. So if you're a history buff or just somebody looking for something fun to do on the weekend, you can go there and you can find all these different destinations. And then twice a year, in May and October, they have like a weekend where people tend to host events, and so you can go to different events. So in May, the Gilderland Historical Society did one with Path Through History and different groups had participated. They put you on a map, and then you know people come. So we thought it would be a really nice opportunity to publicize Museum in the Streets and also to sort of kick off a new round of archives activities because it's been kind of quiet since Mary Jo passed. And, um, so what we decided to do was to look at the founders and, uh, we thought, Oh, how hard can that be? Right. I mean, they're really (laughs) important. We'll find their photos and write up little bios. And it's actually turned out to be harder than we thought. But, um, but didn't Alice Begley mount a project
0: where every single mayor of Altamont is framed? In the, the mayors are all there so in the hallway. They're looking
1: for but, other founders. So we we thought we would start with the people that were on the plaque, you know, yeah. by Orsini Park, uh-huh. and and then we said, well, geez, you know, um, Lucy Cassidy is so important in that time period; she's practically a founder. So let's add her to the mix and. So we've just been kind of working away, going through the archives. And, and as we're doing it, we're finding, we're sort of making a list of all the things we need to do to make it easier to find stuff in the future.
0: So. And you've done a remarkable amount of research on Lucy Cassidy. And here's a teaser. <laughs> some of this will be running as a letter to the editor closer <laughs> to Founders Day. But just tell us uh, some of the
1: amazing facts about the whole Cassidy family. Sure. <laughs> You know, it's like we all know about Lucy Cassidy because of St. Lucy's Church. She uh, bought the land and kind of connected, I guess, with the Albany Diocese. The story goes that she needed a place to for her maids to uh, worship on Sundays. She had bought a built a, a home on the hill with the other summer mansions about 1885 is that still standing is her you know there's some question about which of the houses up there is her house okay. I, i'm not exactly sure i think yeah. it might be over there on presentation way but it's owned by the you know the diocese and so i haven't been able to get over there yet um, keith is sort of the one who has the bead on all the different houses mm-hmm. Um, so I, what I was looking for was a photo and I found a mention that there's a very grainy newspaper photo from the times union. And it said, this is the only existing photo of Lucy Cassidy. And, and I thought, well, that can't possibly be true. I mean, how, how could somebody be so prominent and not have a photograph? And so I, 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 went through the archives, couldn't find anything, went to the State Museum, called the um, Albany Institute of History and Art. So then I thought, okay, well she has to have descendants. So I I went to Ancestry.com and started researching her. And what I discovered was this incredible family story where she was married to William Cassidy, who was a prominent newspaper man in Albany Argus Argus, right in the early kind of early 1800 mid 1800s and um, he actually made his money um, through his connection with Boss Tweed and I that not a
0: very honorable not not a very honorable
1: connection and it was so I I mean I, I don't know a lot about 19th century political New York his history. But the more I learned, it was just really astonishing. It kind of reminds me of today. But um, so Boss Tweed was trying to kind of take over the Albany state politics the way he had taken over New York City politics. And he he bought off the newspaper. So the Argus, he, he paid for what they call state printing. So the state, the some one of the newspapers would publish state bills, and they got paid a that's a reasonable amount of money to do that. Well, um William Cassidy's the Argus's payments went from five thousand dollars to like a hundred and seventy five thousand dollars in a time period of over about six or seven years. So you know, most of that money went into his pockets, mm-hmm. and so he then. Okay was disinclined to criticize Boss Tweed. So he died fairly conveniently, and Lucy inherited all of his money. And her most colorful son was Edward, who um, married a, a Belgian countess and ultimately divorced her. But while he was married, he, he was given a large sum of money by his mother, which he then spent, it seems almost entirely over a short amount of time on what came to be known as Cassidy castle, which was another estate up on the hill and he wanted to be an artist. And so he traveled back and forth to France and ultimately settled in France and, and, and then the enterprise covered him. I mean, covered all of them pretty, pretty closely. Um, But the most, Interesting thing, I think, you know, was in World War II, Edward and his second wife were living behind enemy lines in France. Edward had gotten too old to travel home, and so she stayed there and took care of him. And her son, their son, uh, was in the army, and when the U.S. um, invasion of Italy happened, he got leave to go up to France and track down his mother. His father had died by then, and he was able to find his mother in this in a little village in Brittany. And um, it just seems like a movie, you know. You can just yeah. see well her- and the
0: way you describe it in yeah. <laughs> this letter too. You seem to have a biographer's mind. And another thing I just wanted to have you talk a bit about is the wonderful biography you did of Evrao. Um, just tell us a bit about how you got into that and why you did it.
1: Well, it was, um, Ev, so we, it was another archives project. I was working with Mary Jo and she was doing something on, it was, Either the, I think it was the fair, and I, I'm really interested in farming and local farming. And I said, well, if you're going to do that, you really need to do something about farming because it's, it's important and nobody ever talks about it these days. And she said, well, if you're interested in farming, have you met Ev Rao? And so then she introduced me to Ev. And he and I connected, like, almost immediately. He's just – I couldn't believe he was in his 90s and he was as articulate and and just – whip um, smart as he is was and so we became friendly and and he I he had clearly always had had a book in his mind for years he wanted to tell his story and he asked me he said have you ever written a book and I said no and he said well you want to write mine and (laughs) And you actually said yes. <laughs> and I, I thought a minute and I said, Well, how hard can this be? First of all, he's gonna lose interest. I mean nobody has the patience to sit through, you know, all the interviews and but he just he had he had these stories in mind. So I would you know, he and I would, would um talk, I would record what he was saying, I'd go home and research what he talked about, and then I would write it up, he would go through it correct all the technical things because I didn't really understand a lot about Dutch barn construction and all the things that he was interested in. But what was fun was that I I did a lot of research in the newspapers and I was able to find things about his father that he didn't know because he had a terrible relationship with his father and they really never talked and well, what's remarkable about the
0: book is he was, in everyone's mind, this kind of iconic farmer, and the way you wrote the book, you showed, n- not in any way that was nasty, it was wonderful, but that that was almost a construct. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really, there were some things in his life that were very, very difficult and very different than the way he kind of presented himself to the world. But it was all done in a very kindly way. And It just is a remarkable book.
1: Well, thank you. I I think he really wanted to tell that story. He had a real sense of uh, redemption, sort of having, you know, been very bitter about his childhood and then coming through it. But I felt like there was another story there. Um, I was really curious about... So his father was very abusive when, when Ev was young, both to Ev and to his mom, and um, but I was curious about how his father came to be the person he was. I mean, he was a boogeyman in Ev's world, and and I thought, well, what's his story? And so that's that was was my contribution to the book. And I think what that did was it kind of opened up the the question, and it it you could see the uh, uh, sort of a tortured creative person being sort of. You know, stuck on a farm, you know, like in a tiny he little town he wanted to and, be an artist. Right. Exactly. Yeah. He'd been living in New York <clears throat> City, you know, work, you know, following his passion. And ne- next thing you know, he's, you know, growing hogs and, and you know, driving a tractor and, and it just made him very bitter. And, you know, so it was, it was an interesting, it was a really interesting story. So, someone who's passionate about art is a good segue
0: <laughs> <laughs> into yourself as an artist. I think I remember you studied art at Union College, is right. that right? Mm-hmm. And tell us about yourself as an artist. I know we've had in our library columns recently, um, Sandra Kisselbeck being very enthused about your, um, The way she describes your artwork, and I haven't seen it. I'm so glad you brought some samples, and maybe when Elizabeth takes your picture, we can include some of those so people will see them. But the way Sandra describes them is they're just so vibrant that I think of it, you know, the way flowers were painted by, and now the name is escaping me. Oh,
1: dear. Anyway, let's hear about you as an artist. So uh, I always wanted to be an artist, even before I knew what that meant. And I what, well, tell tell us a little about that. Like, as a child? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I just really was interested in in looking at things, and I thought. And did you, you know, have? You said you had like a military family
0: upbringing, so yeah, that wasn't I, something that I came wasn't. From your we weren't family. really exposed. I didn't yeah. go to an art
1: museum until I was probably nineteen in eighteen nineteen. So it's just yeah. in it you. was just there, and it, it didn't make any sense. But it just was something that I really wanted to do. Um, but it's not something that unless you are Edward Cassidy and have a family trust fund that <laughs> you can just kind of do. So I I studied art and I was interested in lots of other things. And I ended up working in communications for many, many years. And it was such an absorbing job um, that I really didn't have a lot of bandwidth left to do anything else. And so but I had always wanted to retire early and and just do art and other things which is what I did. So when I stopped working um I had been working in you know marketing and I I felt like I I'm not an art for art's sake kind of person. I had worked with a lot of great designers and I I have always looked at a lot of art and thought a lot about art and I traveled a lot and, and I go to museums the way other people go to baseball parks you know it's like <laughs> I check them off my list and do you um, have a favorite museum um probably I have lots. lot I no no it's too hard a question Among there are lots of favorites? museums that I love I yeah. love the Metropolitan Museum of Art because yeah. it's one that I know very well and I can go and just look at a few things and leave um I love small museums like the Phillips Collection in Washington, D.C. and the Courtauld in London um, because, you know, you can go to them and you can really just sort of sit and there's some really great art there. And you, I, I hate museums like the Museum of Modern Art. It's like a bus station that happens to have a lot of paintings. It's just... Not, I mean they're so redoing the it so physical we'll building matters to you. It matters as well as, a lot. Yeah. yeah, and big museums and blockbuster shows, I I'm just sorry that that has become the way of the world because there's some fantastic collections that have just become so commercialized, you know, and and you know, the last time I went to Paris, we were going to visit the Louvre and the lines were so long that it was like going to Disney World, you know, you just couldn't get in unless you were part of a tour. And then you wouldn't have been able to just go at your own pace. We went to Giverny and um, got there, I don't know, it was probably about one o'clock in the afternoon. And the line was like, it was like a three hour wait. By the time we got in, it would have been closed. So, so I, I love museums. I like looking like if I go to a big, big museum, I'll go to the parts of the museum that nobody ever goes to just because it's quiet and I always see something interesting. So
0: So. tell us about your own art what medium do you use?
1: So I I love I when I started painting after I retired I I just was I was craving color and um, I quickly ended up with oil paints which I had never painted much and wasn't but it just came very easily to me and i just i i love painting beautiful things that make people smile and I, <laughs> I love color and i i i know a lot about color theory and so it's one of the reasons when you look at the paintings that they seem to just kind of leap off That's what Sandra wrote, they pop right off the the canvas. So do
0: you have certain subjects that you prefer or that you Um, gravitate towards? I
1: started with, well, I started with a mission, and the mission was to paint uh, local food from local farms. And the idea was that if I could paint enough of them and they looked good enough and— I could create shows around it, which would create a conversation about eating local and the importance of supporting local businesses. And, you know, there's a zillion reasons why eating local is a good thing to so do. So, this is art with a mission. It's art with a mission. <laughs> and, um, and it really has a purpose. And I donate 10% of what I sell, um, to, um, like the, Mohawk Hudson Land Conservancy and the Agricultural Stewardship Association, and um, I try to, uh, you know, I, I I really believe that we're at a critical point, you know, in our world. Um, so, so painting these small paintings of fruits and vegetables—they're relatively inexpensive—and I also make cards and prints so that more people can have them because. You know, people can't afford to put pay for art on their walls. But I learned how to. I taught myself how to print um, giclée prints so that I can sell those for twenty, thirty dollars, and and anybody can own them. Now, what kind of a print is that? I'm not familiar. Gicle? Okay, it's called giclée, and what that means is they're. It's kind of a made-up word, but they're archival prints made with hot, super high-quality inkjet printers. So the color is is just beautiful, and the surface is really beautiful. And if you use good paper, and and I have a really nice printer, and the 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 images are just great. Sometimes I like them better than the originals because Could I you hold them.
0: one up. I just wanted to see one. Is that what you've got? To <laughs> well, print no, in? these are just these um, are
1: just postcards. Oh, po- so they um,
0: also come in postcard form.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I get those made just to promote them, but yeah. So, so I do oh, nice. paintings of fruits and vegetables, and then that starts to get you know that got a little, you know, after a while, like how many can you do? So, <laughs> <laughs> so I've, I've the last year I've been painting a lot of landscapes and more florals. Um, so it's been, it's it's just you know just paint what I feel like painting. I'm yeah, I'm, I don't have to make anybody happy but myself. So.
0: Well, it just sounds like you have a
1: marvelous life. Do you have any closing <laughs> thoughts for our listeners? Uh, you know, not not really. I think I guess what I feel very strongly about is that Altamont is a jewel of a village and we have a wonderful opportunity. People have an incredible opportunity in a smallish town to make A difference and to make life better. And I feel like we sometimes forget that. And it doesn't take a lot of time out of your day to volunteer and get involved in things. But um, people will, you know, the world, you know, the the village will remember you, you know, especially through the, the enterprise. I look back at people who, you know, a hundred years ago, decided to, you know, you know, Founders Day, they started something. They didn't have to do that. They, they could have been doing other things. And, and I think those, those, that's, I guess, what I'd like to leave people with.
0: Well, you have just by your life. You're an <laughs> exemplar of that. Thank you so much, Laura Sharp.